Chapter 8. Honeymoon Once the panic was well underway, Yellen realized that he had next to no chance of bringing things immediately under control. Besides, the giant was terribly close now, and the roar of, No survivors! made it very hard to do any solid thinking. But fortunately, he had the sense to grab the one and only key to the castle and hide it on his person. Fortunately, too, Wesley had the sense to look for such behavior. Give me the key, Wesley said to Yellen once Inigo had his sword securely pressuring Yellen's Adam's apple. I have no key, Yellen replied. I swear on the grave of my parents, may my mother's soul forever sizzle in torment if I am lying. Tear his arms off, Wesley said to Fezzik, who was sizzling a bit himself now because there was a limit as to just how long a holocaust cloak was really good for. And he wanted to strip a bit, but before he did that, he reached for Yellen's arms. Uh, this the key you mean? Yellen said, and he dropped it, and after Inigo had taken his sword, they let him run away. Open the gate, Wesley said to Fezzik. I'm so hot, Fezzik said. Can I please take this thing off first? And after Wesley's nod, he pulled the flaming cloak away and left it on the ground, then unlocked the gate and pulled the door open enough for them to slip through. Lock it and keep the key, Fezzik, Wesley said. It must be after 5.30 by now. Half an hour to stop the wedding. What do we do after we win? Fezzik said, working with the key, forcing the great lock to close. Where should we meet? I'm the kind of fellow who needs instructions. Before Wesley could answer, Inigo cried out and readied his sword. Count Rugen and four palace guards were rounding a corner and running toward them. The time was then 534. The wedding itself did not end until 531, and Humperdinck had to use all of his persuasive abilities to get even that much accomplished. As the screaming from outside the gate burst all bounds of propriety, the prince interrupted the archdean with the gentlest manner and said, Holiness, my love is simply overpowering my ability to wait. Please skip down to the end of the service. The time was then 527. Humperdinck and bought a cup! the archdean said. I'm very old, and my thoughts on marriage are few, but I feel I must give them to you on this most happy of days. The archdean could hear absolutely nothing, and had been so afflicted since he was eighty-five or so. The only actual change that had come over him in the past years was that, for some reason, his impediment had gotten worse. Marriage, he said, very old. Unless he paid strict attention to his title and past accomplishments, it was very hard to take him seriously. Mowage, the archdean began. Again, holiness, I interrupt in the name of love. Please hurry along as well as you can to the end. Mowage is a dream within a dream. Buttercup was paying little attention to the goings-on. Wesley must racing down the corridors now. He always ran so beautifully. Even back on the farm, long before she knew her heart, it was good to watch him run. Count Rugen was the only other person in the room, and the commotion at the gate had him on edge. Outside the door, he had his four best swordsmen, so no one could enter the tiny chapel. But still, there were a lot of people screaming where the brute squad should have been. The four guards were the only ones left inside the castle, for the prince needed no spectators to the events that soon would happen. If only the idiot cleric would speed things along. It was already 529. 
The dream of love wept within the greater dream of ever-wasting west. Eternity is our friend, remember that, and love will forever, you forever. It was 5.30 when the prince stood up and approached the archdean firmly. Man and wife, he shouted, man and wife, say that. I'm not there yet, the archdean answered. You just arrived, the prince replied. Now. Buttercup could picture Wesley rounding the final corner. There were four guards waiting outside. At ten seconds per guard, she began figuring, and then stopped, because numbers had always been her enemy. She looked down at her hands. Oh, I hope he still thinks I'm pretty, she thought. Those nightmares took a lot out of me. Man and wife, your man and wife, the archdean said. Thank you, holiness, the prince said, whirling toward Rugen. Stop that commotion, he commanded, and before his words were finished, the count was running for the chapel door. It was 5.31. It took a full three minutes for the count and the guards to reach the gate, and when they did, the count could not believe it. He had seen Wesley killed, and now there was Wesley, and with a giant and a strangely scarred swarthy fellow. Something about the twin scars banked deep into his memory, but now was not the time for reminiscing. Kill them, he said to the fencers, but leave the middle-sized one until I tell you. And the four guards drew their swords. But too late, too late and too slow, because as Fezzik moved in front of Wesley, an ego attacked, the great blade blinding, and the fourth guard was dead before the first one had sufficient time to hit the floor. Anigo stood still a moment, panting. Then he made a half-turn in the direction of Count Rugen, and executed a quick and well-formed bow. Hello, he said. My name is Anigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. And in reply, the Count did a genuinely remarkable and unexpected thing. He turned and ran. It was now 537. King Lotharin and Queen Bella arrived at the wedding chapel in time to see Count Rugen leading the four guards in a charge down the corridor. Are we too early? Queen Bella said as they entered the wedding chapel and found Buttercup and Humperdinck and the Archdean. There is much going on, the prince said. Due time will come matchlessly clear, but I fear there is a strong possibility that, at this very moment, the Gildarians are attacking. I need time alone in the garden to formulate my battle plans, so could I prevail upon you two to personally escort Buttercup to my bedchamber? His request was, naturally, granted. The prince hurried off then, and, after one stop to unlock a closet and remove several pairs of boots that had once belonged to Gildarian soldiers, he hurried outside. Buttercup, for her part, walked very slowly and peacefully between the old king and queen, there was never any need to worry, not with Wesley there to stop the wedding and take her away forever. The truth of her situation did not take genuine effect until she was halfway to Humperdinck's room. There was no Wesley. No sweet Wesley. He had not seen fit to come for her. She gave a terrible sigh, not one so much of sadness as of farewell. Once she got to Humperdinck's room, it would all be done. He had a splendid collection of swords and cutlery. She had never seriously contemplated suicide before. Oh, of course she'd thought about it. Every girl does from time to time, but never seriously. To her quiet surprise, she found it was going to be the easiest thing in the world. She reached the prince's chamber and said goodnight to the royal family and went directly to the wall display of weaponry. The time was then 5.46. 
Anigo, at 537, was so startled at the Count's cowardice that for a moment he simply stood there. Then he gave chase and, of course, he was faster, but the Count made it through the doorway, slammed it and locked it, and Anigo was helpless to budge the thing. Fezzik! he called out desperately. Fezzik, break it down! But Fezzik was with Wesley. That was his job, to stay and protect Wesley. And though they were still within view of Anigo, Fezzik could do nothing. Wesley had already started to walk slowly, weakly, but he was, under his own power, walking. Charge it, Fezzik replied. Slam your shoulder hard, it will give for you. An ego charged the door. He slammed and slammed his shoulder, but he was thin and the door otherwise. He's getting away from me, an ego said. But Wesley is helpless, Fezzik reminded him. Fezzik, I need you, an ego screamed. Only be a minute, Fezzik said, because there were some things you did, no matter what, and when a friend needed help, you helped him. Wesley nodded, kept on walking, still slowly, still weak, but still able to move. An ego urged. Fezzik hurried. He lumbered to the locked door, threw his bulk against it hard. The door held. Please, An ego urged. I'll get it, I'll get it, Fezzik promised, and he took a few steps back this time, then drove his shoulder against the wood. The door gave some, a little, but not enough. Fezzik backed away from it now. With a roar, he charged across the corridor, and when he was close, he left the castle floor with both feet, and the door splintered. Thank you, thank you, Anigo said, already halfway through the broken door. What do I do now, though? Fezzik called. Back to Wesley, Anigo answered in full flight now, beginning chase through a series of rooms. Stupid. Fezzik punished himself with, and he turned and rejoined Wesley. Only Wesley was no longer there. Fezzik could feel the panic starting inside him. There were half a dozen possible corridors. Which was which, Fezzik said, trying to figure it out, trying for once in his life to do something right. You'll pick the wrong one knowing you, he said out loud, and then took a corridor and started hurrying along as fast as he could. He did pick the wrong one. Wesley was alone now. Inigo was gaining. He could see instant-to-instant instant flashes of the fleeing noble from the next room, and when he reached the place, the Count would have made it into the room beyond, but each time, Inigo was gaining. By 5.40, he felt confident he would, after a chase of twenty-five years, be alone in the room with his revenge. By 5.48, Buttercup felt quite sure she would be dead. It was still a minute before that, as she stood staring at the prince's knives. Lethal looked to be the one most used, the Florinese dagger. Pointed at one end, it entered easily, growing into a triangular shape by the hilt. For quicker bleeding, it was said. They were made in varying sizes, and the prince's looked to be one of the largest, being wrist-thick, where it joined the handle. She pulled it from the wall, put it to her heart. There are always too few perfect breasts in this world. Leave yours alone, she heard. And there was Wesley on the bed. It was 5.48, and she knew she would never die. Wesley, for his part, assumed he had until 6.15 for the hour to be up. That was, of course, when an hour was up. Only he didn't have an hour, only 40 minutes. Till 5.55, actually. Seven minutes more. But, as had been said, he had no way of knowing that. And Inigo had no way of knowing that Count Rugen had a Florinese dagger, or that he was an expert with the thing. It took Inigo until 5.41 before he actually cornered the Count, in a billiard room. Hello, he was about to say. My name is Inigo Montoya. 
You killed my father. Prepare to die. What he actually got out was something less. Hello? My name is Anit. And then the dagger rearranged his insides. The force of the throw sent him staggering backward into the wall. The rush of blood weakened him so quickly he could not keep his feet. Domingo, Domingo, he whispered. And then he was, at 42 minutes after five, lost on his knees. Buttercup was baffled by Wesley's behavior. She rushed to him, expecting to be met halfway in a wild embrace. Instead, he only smiled at her and remained where he was, lying on the prince's pillows, a sword beside his body. Buttercup continued the journey alone and fell onto her very one and darling Wesley. Lee, he said. At a time like this, that's all you can think to say, gently? Gently, Wesley repeated, not so gently this time. She got off him. Are you angry at me for getting married? She wondered. You're not married, he said, softly. Strange, his voice was. Not in my church or any other. But the old man did pronounce. Widows happen every day, don't they, your highness? And now his voice was stronger as he addressed the prince, who entered, muddy boots in hand. Prince Humperdinck dove for his weapons, and a sword flashed into his thick hands. To the death, he said, advancing. Wesley gave a soft shake of his head. No, he corrected. To the pain. It was an odd phrase, and for the moment it brought the prince up short. Besides, why was the fellow just lying there? Where was the trap? I don't think I quite understand that. Wesley lay without moving, but he was smiling more deeply now. I'll be only too delighted to explain. It was 5.50 now. Twenty-five minutes of safety left. There were five. He didn't know that. How could he know that? Slowly, carefully, he began to talk. Inigo was talking, too. It was 5.42 when he whispered, I'm sorry, father. Count Rugen heard the words, but nothing really connected until he saw the sword still held in Inigo's hand. You're that little Spanish brat I taught a lesson to, he said, coming closer now, examining the scars. It's simply incredible. Have you been chasing me all these years, only to fail now? I think that's the worst thing I've ever heard. How marvelous. Inigo could say nothing. The blood fauceted from his stomach. Count Rugen drew his sword. Sorry, father. I'm sorry. I don't want your sari. My name is Domingo Montoya, and I died for that sword, and you can keep your sari. If you are going to fail, why didn't you die years ago and let me rest in peace? And then MacPherson was after him, too. Spaniards. I should never have tried to teach a Spaniard. They're dumb. They forget. What do you do with a wound? How many times did I teach you? What do you do with a wound? Cover it. An ego said, and he pulled the knife from his body and stuffed his left fist into the bleeding. An ego's eyes began to focus again. Not well, not perfectly, but enough to see the Count's blade as it approached his heart. And an ego couldn't do much with the attack. Parry it vaguely, push the point of the blade into his left shoulder where it did no unendurable harm. Count Rugen was a bit surprised that his point had been deflected, but there was nothing wrong with piercing a helpless man's shoulder. There was no hurry when you had him. MacPherson was screaming again. Spaniards, give me a Pollock any time. At least the Pollocks remember how to use the wall when they have one. Only the Spaniards would forget to use the wall. 
slowly, inch by inch, Inigo forced his body up the wall, using his legs just for pushing, letting the wall do all the supporting that was necessary. Count Rugen struck again, but for any number of reasons, most probably because he hadn't expected the other man's movement, he missed the heart and had to be content with driving his blade through the Spaniard's left arm. Inigo didn't mind. He didn't even feel it. His right arm was where his interest lay, and he squeezed the handle, and there was strength in his hand, enough to flick out at the enemy. And Count Rugen hadn't expected that either, so he gave a little involuntary cry and took a step back to reassess the situation. Power was flowing from Inigo's heart to his right shoulder, and down from his shoulder into his fingers, and then into the great six-fingered sword, and he pushed off the wall then, and whispered, Hello. My name is Inigo Montoya. You kill my father. Prepare to die. And they crossed swords. Count went for the quick kill, the inverse Bonetti. No chance. Hello. My name is Inigo Montoya. You kill my father. Prepare to die. And again they crossed, and the Count moved into a moroso defense because the blood was still streaming. Inigo shoved his fist deeper into himself. Hello. My name is Inigo Montoya. You kill my father. Prepare to die. The Count retreated around the billiard table. Inigo slipped in his own blood. The Count continued to retreat, waiting, waiting. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You kill my father. Prepare to die. He dug with his fist, and he didn't want to think what he was touching and pushing and holding into place, but for the first time he felt able to try and move. So the six-fingered sword flashed forward, and there was a cut down one side of Count Rugen's cheek. Another flash. Another cut. Parallel. Bleeding. Oh, my name is Nigo Montoya. You kill my father. Prepare to die. Stop saying that. The Count was beginning to experience a decline of nerve. Inigo drove for the Count's left shoulder, as the Count had wounded his. Then he went through the Count's left arm, at the same spot the Count had penetrated his. Hello, he said, stronger now. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You kill my father. Prepare to die. No, offer me money. Everything, the Count said. Power to. Promise me that. All I have and more. Please. Offer me anything I ask for. Yes, yes, say it. I want Domingo Montoya, you son of a bitch. And the six-fingered sword flashed again. The Count screamed. That was just to the left of your heart. And Ego struck again. Another scream. That was below your heart. Can you guess what I'm doing? Cutting my heart out. You took mine when I was ten. I want yours now. We are lovers of justice, you and I. What could be more just than that? The Count screamed one final time and then fell dead of fear. Inigo looked down at him. The Count's frozen face was petrified and ashen, and the blood still poured down the parallel cuts. His eyes bulged wide, full of horror and pain. It was glorious, if you like that kind of thing. Inigo loved it. It was 5.50 when he staggered from the room, heading he knew not where or for how long, but hoping only that whoever had been guiding him lately would not desert him now.
I'm going to tell you something once, and then whether you die is not strictly up to you, Wesley said, lying pleasantly on the bed. Across the room, the prince held the sword high. What I'm going to tell you is this. Drop your sword. And if you do, then I will leave with this baggage here, he glanced at Buttercup, and you will be tied up, but not fatally, and you will soon be free to go about your business. And if you choose to fight, well, then we will not both leave alive. Expect to breathe a while, the prince said. I think you are bluffing. You have been a prisoner for months, and I myself killed you less than a day ago, so I doubt that you have much might left in your arm. Possibly true, Wesley agreed. And when the moment comes, remember that. I might indeed be bluffing. I could, in fact, be lying here right now because I lack the strength to stand. All that way carefully. You are only alive now because you said to the pain. I want that phrase explained. My pleasure. It was 5.52 now. Three minutes left. He thought he had 18, so he took a long pause and started speaking. Surely you must have guessed I am no ordinary sailor. I am, in fact, Roberts himself. I am, in fact, not the least surprised or odd. To the pain means this. If we duel and you win, death for me. If we duel and I win, life for you. But life on my terms. Meaning? It could all still be a trap. His body was at the ready. There are those who credit you with skill as a hunter, though I find that doubtful. The prince smiled. This fellow was baiting him. Why? If you hunt well, then surely, when you tracked your lady, you must have begun at the Cliffs of Insanity. A duel was fought there, and if you noted the movements and the strides, you would know that those were masters battling. They were. Remember this. I won that fight, and I am a pirate. We have our special tricks with swords. It was 5.53. I am not unfamiliar with steel. The first thing you lose will be your feet, Wesley said. The left, then the right, below the ankle. You will have stumps available to use within six months. Then your hands at the wrist. They heal somewhat quicker. Five months is a fair average. And now Wesley was beginning to be aware of strange changes in his body, and he began talking faster and faster and louder. Your nose, no smell of dawn for you, followed by your tongue, deeply cut away, not even a stump left, and then your left eye, and then my right eye and my ears. Shall we get on with it? The prince said. It was 5.54. Wrong, Wesley's voice rang across the room. Your ears you keep, so that every shriek of every child seeing your hideousness will be yours to cherish. Every babe that weeps in fear at your approach, every woman that cries, Dear God, what is that thing? will reverberate forever in your perfect ears. That is what to the pain means. It means that I leave you to live in anguish, in humiliation, in freakish misery, until you can stand it no more. So there you have it, pig. There you know, you miserable, vomitous mass. And I say this now, and live or die, it's up to you. Drop your sword. The sword crashed to the floor. It was 5.55. Wesley's eyes rolled up into his head, and his body crumpled and half-pitched from the bed, and the prince saw that and went to the floor, grabbing for his sword, standing, starting to bring it high, when Wesley cried out, Now you will suffer, to the pain! His eyes were open again. 
open and blazing. I'm sorry, I meant nothing. I didn't. Look. And the prince dropped his sword a second time. Tie him, Wesley said to Buttercup. Be quick about it. Use the curtain sashes. They look enough to hold him. You'd do it so much better, Buttercup replied. I'll get the sashes, but I really think you should do the actual tying. Woman, Wesley roared, you are the property of the dread pirate Roberts, and you do what you're told. Buttercup gathered the sashes and did what she could while tying up her husband. Humperdinck lay flat while she did it. He seemed strangely happy. I wasn't afraid of you, he said to Wesley. I dropped my sword because it will be so much more pleasure for me to hunt you down. You think so, do you? I doubt you'll find us. I'll conquer Gilder then, and then I'll come find you. The corner you least expect, when you round it, you will find me waiting. I am the king of the sea. I await you with pleasure, he called out to Buttercup. Is he tied yet? Sort of. There was movement at the doorway, and then Inigo was there. Buttercup cried out at the blood. Inigo ignored her, looked around. Where's Fezik? Isn't he with you? Wesley said. Inigo leaned for a moment against the nearest wall, gathering strength. Then he said, Help him up, to Buttercup. Wesley? Buttercup replied. Why does he need me to help him up? Because he has no strength. Now do what you're told, Inigo said. And then suddenly on the floor, the prince began struggling mightily with the sashes where he was tied, and tied well. But power and anger were both on his side. You were bluffing. I was right the first time, Humperdinck said. And Inigo said, that was not a clever thing of me to let slip. I am sorry. And Wesley said, did you at least win your battle? And Inigo said, I did. And Wesley said, let's try to find some place to defend ourselves. At least perhaps we can go together. And Buttercup said, I'll help you, poor darling. And Fezzik said, oh, Inigo, I need you, please, Inigo. I'm lost and miserable and frightened, and I just need to see a friendly face. They moved slowly to the window. Lost and forlorn through the prince's garden was Fezzik, leading the four giant whites. Here, Inigo whispered. Three friendly faces, Fezzik said, kind of bouncing up and down on his heels, which he always did when things were looking up. Oh, Inigo, I just ruined everything, and I got so lost, and when I stumbled into the stables and found these pretty horses, I thought four was how many of them there were, and four was how many of us there were, too, if we found the lady. Hello, lady. And I thought, why not take them along with me in case we all ever run into each other? He stopped a moment, considering. And I guess we did. Inigo was terribly excited. Fezik, you thought for yourself, he thought. Fezik considered that a moment, too. Does that mean you're not mad at me for getting lost? If only we had a ladder, Buttercup began. Oh, you don't need a ladder to get down here, Fezik said. It's only twenty feet. I'll catch you. Only do it one at a time, please. There's not enough light, so if you all come at once, I might miss. So while Humperdinck struggled, they jumped one at a time, and Fezzik caught them gently and put them on the whites, and he still had the key so they could get out the front gate. And except for the fact that Yellen had regrouped the brute squad, they would have gotten out without any trouble at all. As it was, when Fezzik unlocked the gate, they saw nothing but armed brutes in formation, Yellen at their lead, and no one smiling. Wesley shook his head. I am dry of notions. Child's play, of all people, Buttercup said, and she led the group toward Yellen. The Count is dead. The Prince is in grave danger. Hurry now, and you may yet save him. All of you go. Not a brute moved. 
They obey me, Yellen said, and I am in charge of enforcement and... And I, Buttercup said. She repeated, standing up in the saddle, a creature of infinite beauty and eyes that were starting to grow frightening. I, she said for the third and last time, am the queen. There was no doubting her sincerity or power or capability for vengeance. She stared imperiously across the brute squad. Save Humperdinck, one brute said, and with that they all dashed into the castle. Save Humperdinck, Yellen said. The last one left, but clearly his heart wasn't in it. Actually, that was something of a fib, Buttercup said as they began to ride for freedom. Seeing as Letharen hasn't officially resigned, but I thought I am the queen sounded better than I am the princess. All I can say is I'm impressed, Wesley told her. Buttercups shrugged. I've been going to royalty school for three years now. Something had to rub off. She looked at Wesley. You all right? I was worried about you back on the bed there. Your eyes rolled up into your head and everything. Mm, I suppose I was dying again, so I asked the Lord of Permanent Affection for the strength to live the day. Clearly the answer came in the affirmative. I didn't know there was such a fellow, Buttercup said. Neither did I, in truth, but if he didn't exist, I didn't much want to either. The four great horses seemed almost to fly toward Florin Channel. It appears to me as if we're doomed then, Buttercup said. Wesley looked at her. Doomed, madam? To be together until one of us dies? Oh, I've done that already, and I haven't the slightest intention of ever doing it again, Wesley said. Buttercup looked at him. Don't we sort of have to sometime? Not if we promise to outlive each other, and I make that promise now. Buttercup looked at him. Oh, my Wesley, so do I. lived happily ever after, my father said. Wow, I said. He looked at me. You're not pleased? No, no, it's just, it came so quick, the ending, it surprised me. I thought there'd be a little more is all. I mean, was there a pirate ship waiting, or was that just a rumor like it said? Complained to Mr. Morgenstern. And they lived happily ever after is how it ends. The truth was, my father was fibbing. I spent my whole life thinking it ended that way, up until I did this abridgment. Then I glanced at the last page. This is how Morgenstern ends it. Buttercup looked at him. Oh my Wesley, so do I. From behind them suddenly, closer than they had imagined, they could hear the roar of Humperdinck. Stop them! Cut them off! They were admittedly startled, but there was no reason for worry. They were on the fastest horses in the kingdom, and the lead was already theirs. However, this was before Inigo's wound reopened and Wesley relapsed again, and Fezzik took the wrong turn, and Buttercup's horse threw a shoe, and the night behind them was filled with the crescendoing sound of pursuit. That's Morgenstern's ending of A Lady or the Tiger. Type effect. This was before The Lady or the Tiger, remember? Now, he was a satirist, so he left it that way. And my father was, I guess I realized too late, a romantic, so he ended it another way. Well, I'm an abridger, so I'm entitled to a few of ideas of my own. Did they make it? Was the pirate ship there? You can answer it for yourself, but for me, I say yes it was, and yes they got away, and they got their strength back and had lots of adventures and more than their share of laughs. But that doesn't mean I think they had a happy ending either, because in my opinion anyway, squabbled a lot and Buttercup lost her looks eventually. 
And one day, Fezzik lost a fight, and some hotshot kid whipped an ego with a sword, and Wesley was never able to really sleep sound because of Humperdinck maybe being on the trail. I'm not trying to make this a downer, understand. I mean, I really do think that love is the best thing in the world except for cough drops. But I also have to say, for the umpty-umpth time, that life isn't fair. It's just fairer than death. That's all. New York City, February 1973. The end.